Okay, so please do grab your Bibles, and we're going to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's going to be Philippians chapter 3, and that's going to be on page 841 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided for you. So, I recognize the disadvantages of New Year's falling on a Sunday, uh, and that is I'm preaching to about a third, (laughs) a third of you, a third of our church this morning, and a fair number of you. are struggling to stay awake. I noticed that already. That's okay. Uh, I, I was in the same boat when I got up this morning. And the great news is you're here. And honestly, that is a wonderful start. And God loves to start with people who just show up. So you're here. That's awesome. Grateful. The advantages of preaching on New Year's Day is I get the opportunity, which I don't intend to waste, the opportunity to share with you from God's Word prior to most of you making your New Year's resolutions or goals, or they're still in the infancy stage, right? They're still in the formation stage. They're incubating in your mind. You're thinking about them. You're rolling them over. It's very likely that one of your goals will be a spiritual one for this new year, for 2017. If nothing else, because you're, you're here this morning, right? You're here or you're gonna be, someone's going to be listening to this later on our podcast or on our radio program later. So you care enough. You're here you probably want to have a spiritual goal in your life. It might be pitching up to a community group and becoming part of a community in 2017. It could be serving others in the church, right? being a true member of God's body by serving others. It could be reading your Bible on a daily basis and making a Bible reading plan for that. And if you look on our online or on the blog from last year, there's some good Bible reading plans you can check out. It may be to pray more consistently. And as I mentioned, all these little goals, which are important goals, they're all just different ways, really, to get to know Jesus better. Ultimately, all these goals are ways for us to get to know and become more like Jesus. So in Paul's brief letter to this, the Philippian church, he shares with them that knowing Jesus is his number one goal, his number one resolution. And then Paul gets specific with regard to what about Jesus he wants to get to know and how to keep on wanting to get to know Jesus, which is part of the problem for us, isn't it? We want Jesus, but then we have to sometimes pray, Jesus, I want to want you. You know what I mean? I want to want you again. So Paul shares a little bit about how he continues to want Jesus in his life. So what we're going to do is, rather than read the passage in full, we're going to kind of read along with Paul. Read along as Paul explains himself. He'll explain himself about getting in with Jesus, going deeper with Jesus and moving forward with Jesus. So let's start here. Firstly, getting in. Let's read verses 4 through 6, starting in the middle of verse 4. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, or or reason for confidence in himself or herself, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in her or herself, I have more. Paul says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What's Paul doing here as he's listing these things, as he's sharing this with the church? What's he doing? He's giving us his resume. That's what he's doing. He's giving us his CV. He's listing off in bullet point fashion what he brings to the table as a religious leader. Some of these qualities are inherited qualities from Paul. So his parents circumcised him on the right day, which was the eighth day, to show he's a child of God's chosen people. He was one of the faithful tribes. 
Benjamin's family was the only one along with the family of Judah that stayed true to worshiping God in his temple after everyone else, after King Solomon died, went somewhere else to worship God and also started to worship other gods, including that. His tribe, his family, they were the faithful ones. Other achievements, though, are achievements that Paul earns, that he puts on his resume. He grew up in the Greco-Roman culture of Tarsus, but he moves to Jerusalem intentionally to get educated, and he makes a conscious effort to get to know everything about his people, about his history, and about his culture, so he can really call himself, I'm not just a Hebrew, I'm like a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am the real deal. He chooses a Jewish denomination, right? In churches, we have different denominations. Judaism had this too. He was called a Pharisee. Pharisee was the, being a strict, disciplined, well-respected, well-regarded sect or denomination. That's the one he chose. And he's not just a Pharisee in name only, but he's so loyal and knowledgeable to that denomination that he spots the threat of rebel Christians, this new sect of people who believe in the Galilean named Jesus, and he recognizes the threat right away that it can't just be ignored, and he does something about it. He persecutes the church. And finally, he lived as rightly as he possibly could. And when he did mess up, when he failed, he brought offerings to the temple to sacrifice them, as directed by the law. And that way, he was righteous. So Paul has a really, really, really good resume. And what do I mean by that resume? A resume is always an attempt to get into something from the outside. Think about it. It's always an attempt to get into something when you're coming at it from the outside. We are excluded, or we might feel excluded. So either on paper or in our minds, we produce a resume. We do this professionally, but we also do it socially. Right? We good traits to win people over. Right? We do it for others, but we also do it for ourselves. Sometimes we've got to convince ourselves that we belong don't we? I think about that old Saturday Night Live skit, I don't know if you remember this, where a man named Stuart Smalley would look in the mirror and he would convince himself of his resume by saying, Stuart, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And he would do this over and over to himself. And we kind of do this too, don't we? We psych ourselves up. I belong here. I'm part of this. It's our resume. We can do it religiously as well. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's listing qualifications, achievements that would get him in with God, that would make him right with God. And it's a really good resume. Yet, Paul ultimately rejects his own resume in favor of an even better one. And who could possibly have a better one than what we've mentioned here, what we've seen Paul list here? We read about it in verses 7 through 9. He continues his line of reasoning. He says, But whatever gain I had with this old resume, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That old resume is rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul twice uses a word in here that sounds very old-fashioned, very sit-in-the-pews and be extra-religious kind of word that I probably should interpret and use a different word, but it's a perfect word. It is the perfect and most important word in this passage. 
most important word we're going to read this morning, and it's righteousness. And you hear it in the Bible. And as if you've gone to church before, you probably nodded your head like, yeah, yeah, righteousness. It's the most important word. So what is it? Righteousness actually gets Paul in with God. So what is it? Righteousness is everything God is, says, and does. Do you remember growing up and asking your mom and dad, why do I have to introduce myself to adults? Or why do I have to make my bed? Or why do I have to do what the teacher tells me when it seems ridiculous? And your parents would say, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do, which I always is like, that's not a good enough reason. But as I read this passage and I think about righteousness, it's actually a great response. It's the right thing to do. A good answer It is what God would do. Whatever God would do, imitate that. That is righteousness. Paul is specifically talking about an accumulated righteousness, a resume of doing right like God does right. And Paul, again, has a very good resume, doesn't he? He lists, here are all the things I did right, and I did them really right. Which is why righteousness can become a person's greatest obstacle to knowing God. You may have thought I was going to say sin. You may have thought I was going to say temptation or idolatry. I'm saying righteousness is right up there with potential obstacles to knowing God. Why is that? Because many of you have a good resume. Many of you have a really good resume. I've heard from many of you before, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in church. And so your whole lives, and I've been there, you've thought, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. I've got a good resume. And it's so good that you can't possibly believe that God would deny you from knowing him forever. Because your resume is pretty good. I was recently reading about the American uh, statesman and one of the uh, United States founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, who was during his lifetime building a resume of righteousness. Uh, he listed, this is, this is way back when, right, the 18th century, he's listed 13 virtues. He narrated down the 13 virtues and he listed them in this little book. And he carried this book around with him so that he could work on each virtue during the week. And he had two columns, the virtue and then also the defect. So he'd carry the little book around, and when he would fail in that virtue, he would write down a little note that he'd fail. And his goal was to to achieve a clean 13-week cycle for each of the 13 virtues. So 13 consecutive weeks, he would do each of those virtues well, like really, really well. But he started to notice something else. As he was writing these entries down, and he seemed to get more disciplined, and look, I'm growing, he noticed pride. He saw it as clear as day. Here's what he said. He said, there is perhaps not one of the natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. You can disguise it, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive. Even if I can conceive that I completely overcome it, overcome it I should probably be proud of my humility. He couldn't do it. He could, he, he could start to get all the virtues, and then he would notice himself, I'm kind of looking down on other people. I kind of feel like I'm better than others. I'm kind of giving myself a pat on the back. And, and he couldn't balance achieving all these things on his list, but also not looking down on other people and feeling a sense of being puffed up. Franklin eventually then gave up the list entirely, and he started to see gratification from the lady folk in his life or around him. But, but these are the inevitable consequences, the inevitable extremes, I should say, of, of building a moral resume. Either you grow prideful or you give up. 
as you achieve things, as you, as you grow as a person, as you get more confidence in yourself, just in yourself, you either grow more prideful, you look down on others, you get a sense of moral superiority, or you just give up. Or in Franklin's case, he did both. So by faith, Paul recognizes this, by faith he chooses a better resume. Jesus' resume to get in with God. Look what he says here. Not, Paul says, not a righteousness of my own that comes from following the law, right? That would make Paul a little better, but also prideful. He now considers that a loss, a rubbish, that resume. But, he says, instead, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That righteousness is Jesus' resume. All the good he's done. Now, consider everything you love, or if you don't love Jesus, at least everything you respect about Jesus Christ, that you've heard about. The wisdom and the kindness he shows when an adulterous woman is brought before him. And he says, let him who is without, the fir- without sin cast the first stone. Right? In that moment, you see, man, Jesus is wise, but he's also loving, he's tender. Or the way that Jesus honored and cared for and taught women in a time when women were only allowed to be taught in the outer courts of the temple. They had to be on the very fringes of the temple. And Jesus says, no, I want to include you. I want you to follow me also because I care about you. Even though other people treat you like you're less than human, I see God's image in you and love you dearly. His teachings about not being so judgmental, about loving the least, about praying for those who persecute us, and then living out those teachings as Jesus did. We respect that. We love that. And for that reason, many of us call Jesus a great moral teacher, although he claims to be much more. Because Jesus is right living. In himself, he is right living. He lives the life we could never live on our own. And then dies the death we deserved in order to credit to us his resume. In order to say, here, this can be yours. You can get in with God with this instead of with your own. And when we put our faith in Jesus, when we trust him and his resume above our own, we can get in. You can't get in, friends, any other way. You can't get in with God any other way. One of the most moral, strict, disciplined men in history recognizes his pride in being these things we've just mentioned. And the only thing that could release him was to trust in Jesus' resume of right living. Otherwise, he knew he would take credit for himself and he would grow prideful in his life. When you really start believing that God and Jesus Christ really lived to give you this resume and died to give you this resume so he could be with you forever, you just want to get to know this guy more deeply. And that's the opportunity we have in in, in Christ. And that's exactly how Paul responds. He responds by wanting to know Jesus more deeply. He responds by going deeper with Jesus. That's the second point this morning. This gift of righteousness is so wonderful. It is so amazing as a free gift that he didn't deserve. We read in verse 10, that I may know him. I get this gift of righteousness, but it's not just for me to kind of say, yay. It's in order that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So first of all, that I may know Jesus. So if you have trusted Jesus, is his resume above your own? Is he your supreme desire? What I love about Paul saying this here, about writing this to the Philippian church, is Paul's about 30 years in as he writes this. 30 years of knowing Jesus. 30 years of waking up every morning to talk with Jesus, asking him for help with both big and very normal things in life. 
30 years of him reading the Bible like it's necessary food, like it's breakfast, like it's lunch, like it's dinner. And Paul gets specific. He wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, he says here. So, so he reads, he responds, and he sings to experience the power of Jesus. Not just to experience it sort of for a religious rush or for goosebumps, but to know and become more like Jesus. And you may get that. You may get a, an amazing experience of God. And I pray you do through Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. But ultimately, that's to get to know Jesus better and to become more like him. 30 years of trying to help others know about Jesus and to worship him. 30 years of getting mocked for that, persecuted for that, jailed for that. So Paul keeps on going and says, not only that, I, I want to also share in Jesus' sufferings. Look at this in verse 11. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So 30 years in, Paul wants to know all of Jesus more deeply. And I realized this past week for myself, I'm 22 years in. 22 years in with God following Jesus Christ. And as I read Paul's words, I'm just deeply convicted that really so often in my life I rely on my own resume, my own record of past righteousness. That's what I really rely on to be in with God, to feel like God is pleased with me, is okay with me, and accepts me. I rely so much on my past, my tenure as a pastor, the years I followed Jesus, the things I've done, the things he's done through me. I'm just being honest. I kind of subtly, I don't think it to myself every day. Don't think of me like that. But just subtly, I start to rely on those things. And in doing so, I wasted so many precious days of getting to know Jesus more deeply. And I'm just filled with regret for that. And how many days went by where I just wasted them, not pressing on and getting to know Jesus more deeply. So what's a guy to do? What's a gal to do in those situations? Thankfully, there's nothing I have to do. Because again, this is the beauty, wonder, and glory of righteousness given to us by Jesus. My failures don't at all change the status as being for sure in with God, belonging to him. I have failed. I've relied on my own resume. I didn't burn it and throw it away like I should have. But thankfully, I know for sure because of Jesus' resume, I'm for sure in with God. Paul recognizes his own failure also, and he talks about it. And he talks about how he moves forward. And this is the third point this morning, moving forward. We talked about getting in. We talked about going deeper, finally moving forward. As you try get to know and love Jesus, you're going to fail. Paul admits this twice. Listen to his line of reason as, he, as we go forward. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Verse 13, he repeats it again. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, twice he wants to say, I'm not perfect. I'm not fully made known this reality of knowing Jesus the way I should. I admit I've failed. Paul knew what it was like to read the Bible in order to get to know God better. Starting in Genesis, but maybe not quite making it to the next book, Exodus. You guys ever tried to read the Bible before? And you start in January, and you get through most of Genesis. You get near Exodus, and you're like, eh, I don't know what's going on anymore. I think I'm just going to give up. And if Paul didn't know that feeling, at least he experienced dry mornings where the words didn't jump out of the page, where he didn't know exactly how to apply them to his life. Concerning prayer, he knew what it was like to forget to talk to God for long stretches. 
Has that ever happened to you during the day? At some point during your day, you're like, whoa, I haven't even talked, I haven't, I haven't even acknowledged God today in my life. And it's like 2 p.m. And if Paul didn't know that, he at least went through stretches where he didn't sense the power of God's presence, the full confidence that God would answer because he's a sinful man. When, when Paul volunteers to serve a local church community, he no doubt endured moments when the passion wasn't there and he was just going through the motions as he served. Like when some of you show up for kids' ministry or on Sunday morning to help us out. And you're barely awake and you're like, I don't want to be here. I'm just going through the motions. I've had Sundays when I've done that as a preacher. But, Paul says in verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says this idea of pressing on again. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on towards Jesus. And this, this phrase, I press on, mentioned twice here, is a remarkable statement if we look at it a little more deeply. The verb Paul uses in the Greek is, in the original Greek is diako, which means to chase down. Diako, to chase down. I'm going to press on. I'm going to keep chasing down Jesus. I'm going to keep diacoing Jesus. What's really remarkable, though, is that Paul is repeating the exact same word from his resume in verse 6. Look up in verse 6, where he says he was a persecutor of the church. That's the same word, diacon. In other words, he was a diacon of the church. He was a chase downer of the church. He would, with all his passion, with all his focus, Paul would chase down the church. And so what he's saying here, very intentionally, this is no accident because Paul's a very bright man, he's connecting these verses, his old life and his new life. He's saying the same relentless pursuit with which I chased down Christians to eradicate them by putting them in jail or even in some cases handing them over to death. That has been redirected to chase down Jesus, to chase down getting to know him, to seek after him, even after failure, even after he's messed up in his life. And I I think we can take a moment to recognize how unusual this really is. Think of how strongly that negative experiences and negative emotions drive us to have that laser focus, passion to accomplish things in life. Whatever it might be at home, in friendships, socially, professionally, the fear of failure, anger for getting snubbed the last time around, competition to beat someone, Jealousy on the one hand, pride on the other. These things fuel us oftentimes to make achievements and accomplishments in life. For you guys who've ever seen the movie uh, Star Wars or any of the Star Wars movies, there's a reason why we feel with the main characters the temptation to join the dark side. There's a temptation there. Or, or think of Lord of the Rings. If you ever read that book or seen that movie, the temptation to want to use the evil ring for good because in that negativity, there's a tremendous force and power to get things done, to accomplish things, to defeat and conquer. And so you feel it when you watch those movies, right? You're like, oh man, how is Luke resisting this? How is Frodo not giving in? Yet Paul says he is able to move forward from these failures, from these negative experiences and emotions that result. How? Let's look in verse 13. Brothers, I don't consider myself to have made it my own. I haven't, I haven't gotten to know Jesus the way I should, but he says, one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what, what lies ahead. The penultimate key for moving forward is forgetting. To forget those little moments 
when you gave into self-indulgence, those seasons when the motives of your heart are off, those periods when you, you just gave up on God for a little bit or took a break from him. But he's not referring just to failure here. He's not saying forget just your sin and your rebellion against God. He's also referring to success. Paul had accomplished much. Remember his resume? Making disciples. Now as a Christian, making disciples, planting churches, standing up to authorities on behalf of the little guy. He's even saying, I have to forget those things and move on from those as well. Which is easier said than done, right? When we do poorly, what do we tend to do? When we mess up and we fail, especially at the same thing over and over and over again, what do we tend to do? We dwell, don't we? We dwell on those things. The memory of that failure nips at our heels such that we have a hard time forgetting it. And it even motivates our subsequent actions. When we do well, we hang on to those moments for dear life. Right? Like, no, I remember, I did this well, I did this well. And people encourage us, you did this well, you did this well. Paul can forget the good and the bad in his life because of righteousness. Not his own, but that which comes from God through faith in Jesus. By, by meditating on Jesus' resume of righteousness, the wisdom and tenderness he showed in his life, the honor and care he demonstrated for the overlooked, his loving of the least, his quiet endurance of unjust pain, and by meditating on his voluntary death to give that resume to us, a couple things happen. Paul recognizes his failures never define him. If that's true, if all this is given to me through Jesus Christ, all the actions of Jesus through his death on the cross, that means my failures will never define me. Rather, Jesus' resume does. Standing with God, unchanged, no matter what. And also, that unchanged, no matter what, standing with God gives Paul the freedom to take risks for God. Because no matter what, God's going to be with him. He can try and teach hard-hearted people about Jesus. He can plant churches in really hostile places. They don't even want you to meet on Sundays. He can stand up and speak boldly to authorities who could kill him like that, knowing that whether he succeeds or fails, it's going to be Jesus' resume that represents him anyhow. It's going to be Jesus' resume that defines him anyhow. And there's tremendous freedom in that. Last weekend, my father-in-law was helping me replace some rotted, uh, rotted boards on our back porch. As you guys remember about me, I've shared it many times, uh, I'm not a handyman. Katie and I are frequently mentioning that it'd be great to have a husband around the house uh, who could do some of those things. But we had, we, we, my father-in-law was great. We, we went and we got a bunch of two-by-four, two-by-six boards ready to put them in. And they required exact precision to fit them in because other boards had warped over time. So we had to get a saw out. We had to kind of kind of chisel things in. It's very difficult. I much preferred just taking the rotted boards out. That was my favorite task, just getting a hammer, a crowbar for leverage, and just going to town on those rotted boards. That was much better for me. Whack at those. Even if just part of those rotted boards ripped off or I failed to sort of uh, eradicate the whole nail where it needed to be taken out, I could always just hack off the rest of the rotted board, right? Because it was rotted. We weren't going to use it again anyway. I could always nail down wherever those nails were sticking up, sort of press them back against the boards underlying. Nothing I could do in whacking with that hammer and using that crow board, nothing I could do could ruin that porch, that standing porch, which empowered me to press on with fresh intensity. Let's get on to the next one, right? And I was going, I was excited. Like, kids were worried, like, what's, what's going to end to dad, right? 
like turning all red and veins are popping out of his face. It's weird. Um, that's what it's like when you depend on Jesus' resume of righteousness above your own. You can press on to the next thing with fresh intensity because literally nothing you can do can ruin your standing with him. Nothing you can do can break down the structure of his love for you. You can't ruin it. So you can press on with fresh intensity for him. Now, I hope you've noticed a trend here. If you want to get in with God, depend on Jesus' resume of righteousness above your own. If you want to go deeper in knowing Jesus, getting to know him deeper is fueled by that free gift of being right with him, that resume of righteousness. The ability to move forward after you fail and succeed comes from a better resume of righteousness where you can say, you know what? Jesus' resume defines me. So, so here's what I want us to remember in a nutshell this morning. Choose to depend, friends. Choose to depend on Jesus' resume of doing right. Not your own resume of doing right. Not all the credit you've worked up for yourself over time, being a good Christian, doing well for others, being a kind friend, or doing works of charity. But Jesus' resume. According to God's word, this is, this is the best place to begin for knowing God in 2017. I have a large collection of baseball cards that did not make it down here to K-Man when we moved seven years ago. Baseball trading cards, um, basically you trade them with your friends, and believe it or not, they're worth money. These little pieces of cards can be worth money, which is a little bit ridiculous when you think about it, but one of my most valuable cards is a 1982 Topps baseball card labeled Future Stars, and it's valued at about $120. It's not bad. There are three players on this card the first is a man named Jeff Schneider. Let me tell you about Jeff Schneider. Schneider played one year of professional baseball. He pitched in 11 games. He gave 13 earned runs in those 11 games. Didn't pitch many innings. That's not very good if you know baseball. The second player is a man named Bob Bonner. Bob played four years of baseball. He only appeared in 61 games, just like a third of a season in four years. He had eight runs batted in as a hitter, zero home runs. Home runs are like overs in cricket, right? Wonderful thing to have. Sixers, Sixers. Dang it, I knew I was going to get that wrong. Thank you, James. I tried. All right, there's a third player on that baseball card. His name, he played 21 years for the Baltimore Orioles. He appeared in 3,001 games. He came to about 11,551 times. He collected 3,184 hits, 431 home runs, batted 1,695 uh, batted in 1,695 runs, and his name is Cal Ripken Jr. Cal Ripken is in the Baseball Hall of Fame, incredibly wealthy, honored by both dignitaries and regular Joes and Josephines like you and I. He even came down here to Cayman, and people flocked to see him. He's a great guy. Now imagine if you met Bob Bonner. You shook his hand, and Bob boasted, hey, did you know that my baseball card, it's worth over $100? How would you react? you'd kind of chuckle, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> because you know deep down that has nothing to do with him and his performance. That's how it is when we come to Christ. We can point to our own works, our own statistics, and ask, hey, God, look at that. It's good enough, right? And it isn't. If you want to hold up your stats to God, you don't stand a chance. None of us do. So rely on someone else's statistics. I want to exhort you this morning to lay down your pride. 
Lay down your bread and choose Jesus' record of doing right. When you put your faith in Jesus, his statistics become yours. And you're worth infinitely more because of someone else's resume. Let's pray together. God, I think many of us are here this morning because we have a spiritual goal in our lives, some kind of goal which, when we get to the bottom of it, it's just a means to get to know you better, Jesus. We want to grow closer to you. We want to know you. We want to become more like you. And the way to start, according to the Bible, according to the Apostle Paul, is depending not on our own record of righteousness to get us in, but on Jesus' record of righteousness. To, to respond to that free gift given to us by Jesus' life and death that can fuel us to want to get to know you better, Jesus. Use it to fuel our lives. And finally, when we, when we mess up, when we, we inevitably will, and those failures nip at our heels, and we get down on ourselves, we can know because of your record of right doing, Jesus, there is nothing that has changed about our relationship with you. All we need to do is trust in you, Jesus. Help us do that today. Help us start well by trusting in what you've done for us so we can be with you forever. We ask this all in your name, Jesus, and we thank you. Amen.